0: Greetings to all of you strange little white-winged doves. I'm James. And I'm a mouse. Duh. <laughs> I'm Emma. <laughs> the ears gave it away. They really do. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> of course. And we would like to welcome you to... That Strange Podcast. Yes. Getting stranger and stranger and strange. Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, We are glad you could make it today, and we hope you're enjoying the show in general. We certainly do hope that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we do. Hell, everything we do here, it's it's for you. It is for you, yeah. I mean, we do have fun, obviously, but (laughs) it really comes back to you the listeners and uh thanks for being so warm and accepting and coming with us on this journey it's homeward bound too, with the incredible journey <laughs> it is it is i like that speaking of us how how are we this week oh you know thank you for asking how am i though um i'm feeling strange and getting stranger all the time <laughs> I, don't, I don't know My power is growing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I'm good. I'm very good. Uh, How about you, my love? How are you? I don't see how that's any of your business. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's the best. You got me. You Uh, got me, girl. Your face was
1: so funny. Like, your jaw literally dropped so far it almost touched the desk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was like, wait, what? God. It was, I'm it was so thrown off.
1: Oh, that was so good. Beautiful.
0: Beautiful. But to actually
1: answer your question, oh, you yeah. Know, yeah. Uh, I'm dangerously close to fabulous. Ooh. Feeling good as hell.
0: <laughs> what a treat, folks. You hear it. We have, as a special guest tonight, we have Lizzo. Uh, Please welcome Lizzo. It's true. <laughs>
1: you know, I actually just took a DNA test.
0: Yeah? Yeah. How, how'd that turn out? The doctors <laughs> informed me that I am 100% that bitch. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, honestly, I love this side of you. Girl,
1: I am feeling myself in here on this day. I can tell.
0: I can tell. Uh, I love it. So, you're feeling it. Hell, I'm feeling it. Uh,
1: Hell, yeah. I, Hell, Yeah. yeah. Uh, do we have anything to get to before the story like any comments concerns addendums questions etc
0: just one okay uh, yeah what is your favorite part of Aaron Brockovich and why is it the part where Julia Roberts <laughs> says they're called boobs and oh my god that really is my favorite <laughs> part of that movie i think that's everyone's favorite part and if not it probably should be you should rethink your life if it's not your favorite part <laughs> literally <laughs>
1: So, um, with that out of the way, what do you say we get down? Get down? What do you— <laughs> I don't know what that was. I'm just really slap happy today. <laughs> we can edit that out later.
0: I'm not, I'm not going to. Okay, don't. <laughs> I like it too much. <laughs> uh, so, I say, let's get down into it. <laughs> so, first things first. Let's go back in time— to New York City, and specifically New York City in the 90s. Now, to understand New York City, you have to actually go back to the late 60s. That's when the city began seeing a marked increase in crime rates. By the end of the 1980s, the rates were absolutely out of control. In many years, during the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, crime rates were more than double what they were in the 60s.
1: So, so,
0: it's not like New York today. It is nothing like New York today, I would imagine.
1: In addition to the rising crime rates, mm-hmm. um, New York City was hit really hard by the crack epidemic in the 80s, which peaked in 1990. hmm um and new york then it's like the city was a lot of graffiti yeah it had a lot of illicit drug dens and picture like very
0: neon signs that lead you to cd clubs <laughs> honestly when you said that i'm picturing um uh, what's that down? hill valley From Back to the Future. Oh, my God, yes. Like, when they go back to 1985 and Biff's, like, all in control of everything. He's got the tower. (laughs) And the principal's getting shot at by gang members. Exactly, yeah. 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 It's pretty much just like that. Yeah. Um, That makes sense, actually. That movie was made in the 80s. So, New York, uh, during this time... was hard to describe. However, I did find a quote from a a famous photographer by the name of Gregor Alessandrini, um, and he painted New York thusly. Quote, the city had obviously tremendously changed since the 70s and 80s, but you just had to walk around the corner, enter any downtown dive bar to find the signs and remains of legendary New York. You could just point your camera and see empty lots, graffiti and R.I.P. murals, crazy people and wild parties, cinematic atmospheres in the desolate meatpacking district, 42nd Street sleaze still alive, old signs and storefronts. And he says, finally, old New York atmosphere in general. So, yeah, I think we're on the, you know, on the right track That with that Back to the Future yeah, thing. absolutely. It's that. Um, and just like in back to the future, police were struggling immensely to keep up with the chaos that was ensuing. Uh, it got so bad that the the, uh, the cops actually started ignoring so-called quality of life crimes, which is essentially stuff like disorderly conduct, you know, loitering, um, stuff like that. In favor of only focusing on violent crimes, you know, of which there were so many, um, and so that it's an interesting approach. That's wild to me. Yeah, it's almost counterintuitive. It's like we're yeah. going to ignore these crimes, but we're going to, you know, but we're not actually going to ignore these crimes in all cases. But we'll get to that later. Um, essentially, a lot of crimes were allowed to run rampant because the NYPD was. Really just focusing on the the really violent crimes. And they weren't necessarily following through on everything else. Now, the queer scene in the early 90s, it's kind of hard to define. But let's try to. Yeah, and again, <laughs> it's not going to be like the queer scene of today. No, it was a vastly different world. Um, the 80s were really the beginning of this political-slash-evangelical movement against queer individuals. Now, while that had started a long time ago, uh, it it really picked up steam. And I think it's safe to say that most pe- queer people were probably closeted for, you know, obvious reasons. Um, Which is just so sad. Well, yeah. Um, So some reasons why people might be closeted, it it was not socially acceptable to come out. And and I'm saying that now in 2022 where it's still not always socially acceptable. So, yeah, again, it it was bad. And this was years before, you know, Don't Ask, Don't Tell and DOMA were passed um, by President Bill Clinton, I might add. But anyway— It was a time when homosexuality was still classified as an illness by the World Health Organization um, and the American Medical Association, for that matter. Uh, Side note tangent on that. Being transgender was classified as an illness by the World Health Organization until 2019, as in, you know, less than three years ago. That is really not long enough ago. It is in, in not even close to long enough ago. I know. I, I was I was pretty blown away by that. Even though I, you know, I, I think I knew that somewhere. I think I tried to bury it in my brain. Yeah. But, um, you know, obviously they weren't in the right place at this time in the 90s politically. And we weren't necessarily headed in the right direction. Headed fully. backward. Yeah. There would, I mean, there would be some... Ups and downs. And as we know, it's a, it's a constant roller coaster for queer folk. And now I'm going to set the stage, you know, even further. Um, in June 5th of 1981, that was the day that a new virus of what is initially referred to as a new type of pneumonia is discovered by the CDC amongst a group of five otherwise healthy gay men. Okay. Now, in July 2nd of that same year, the San Francisco-based Bay Area Reporter refers to the new virus as, quote, gay man's pneumonia. Hate that. Despise that. Uh, the story was all but hidden on page 34, even in the liberal gay-leaning publication. Um, and at the time, I think they thought it was just a potential symptom connected to the rising u- usage of poppers within the community. Don't blame paupers. In 1983, someone you might have heard of, Jerry Falwell, calls AIDS a, quote, gay plague. So we're at a time where the idea that AIDS is a gay disease really begins to gain traction. And the religious evangelicals get involved in the AIDS uh, crisis. Um, even though that was obviously quickly dismissed as false, we all know that there is, to this day, a deep and disturbing association with HIV and AIDS and the queer community. And it's just, it's not a fair correlation. No, it's categorically untrue. Yeah. And if I were to sum this up, I would say, it's a rocky time to be queer. Arguably the worst time in U.S. history. Because, you know, before the 80s, Queer people tended to live in the shadows a bit. But as the sexual liberation movement in the 60s and 70s, you know, came about and gained steam, it undoubtedly, I think, led to more people coming out and people expressing themselves and, you know, just wanting to live their true lives. I mean, as they have the right to do. Exactly. But then with that, I think, came all the backlash of being open. So it's kind of a double-edged sword, which... Well, yeah. and if I think of how much that still happens in
1: 2022, mm-hmm. yeah. I can't imagine how bad it must have been back then.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. And um, all of this is to say it may still not be a great country when you're queer. Right. But the 80s and 90s represent um, an apex in queer phobia from the top of the system. I'm talking the government all the way down to friends, neighbors, and family members. Um, And I'll leave it on this quote. To be gay or trans or black or a woman or anyone not at the white, straight, and male center of America's Venn diagram of sanctioned personhood is to know that someone you've met maybe a dozen times, maybe a dozens of someones, would have leapt at the chance to bludgeon you to death and that this hatred has nothing to do with you.
1: So now that we've set the scene for you, we can really get into our story, which begins on May 5th, 1991, when the body of a man was found alongside the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and it was found by a maintenance worker, and he found it about 30 feet or so from the road. Now, the worker... Looks inside a 55-gallon trash barrel and finds something big. And it's wrapped in a total of eight double-bagged and double-knotted trash bags. And it was, like, inexplicably heavy. Yeah. And he even says that it's so heavy, he just
0: had to know what was in them. You know what? I would, too, though. My morbid curiosity would totally take over in that situation.
1: Same, but I'd be hoping for like puppies, maybe.
0: Well, yeah. <laughs> I bet this man really wishes it were puppies. But oh, not yeah. Like, but like, obviously, like cute puppies in a yeah. box. Yes, you can take home with you.
1: Because when he started peeling back the layers of mm-hmm. the garbage bags, like yeah. untying them, getting into them, yeah, he saw what looked to him to be a deer carcass. He looks a little closer, and he notices that, hey, this is definitely not a deer. Uh-oh. Yeah. And he even says, quote, It looked like a loaf of bread, but then I saw freckles.
0: Ugh, oh, yeah. ch- that is
1: chilling. It
0: really ah. paints
1: a picture.
0: Ah. And— oh, That's like—that's like—, that's like- it's like stuff of nightmares.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Uh, like literally a horror movie. <laughs> yeah.
1: And the man had been stabbed multiple times as well as he had been dismembered. Okay. And I'm going to go ahead and say kind of a content warning. Yeah. On what we're about to talk about. <laughs> Gets a little graphic. That it do. Um. So the man had three fresh bruises on his head. Mm -hmm. One on his forearm and one on his shin. And even though he was stabbed multiple times in both the chest and back, there was, quote, a gaping oval wound in his chest that was ultimately deemed what was responsible for his death. Well, yeah, that'll do it, unfortunately. And, uh, again, gruesome disclaimer here, because it gets worse. Um, This man's penis had been removed and subsequently shoved into his own mouth post-mortem. I I have no words. No words. Yeah. No.
0: No.
1: So, investigators immediately, they're trying to pull fingerprints from the trash bags and put them into the state database. Yeah. Because that's the logical thing to do. Well, of course. But they don't get any hits on it. Okay. And they try other nearby states, but also get nothing.
0: Okay. That's frustrating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So they're like, okay, what else can we do? Mm-hmm. So they decide, the police, they decide they're going to put out sketches of the unidentified dead body at the Turnpike's toll booths in the hopes that someone would recognize him. It's very creative. Yeah, absolutely. I like it. Yeah. Um, They actually created a sketch from a couple of potential witnesses who reported seeing this man Uh with a man described as slim, around 40 or so, about six foot, and he had
0: blonde or maybe light brown hair. Okay. Okay. A very vague description. Very, but, vague. you know, they often are. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, you know, in secondhand witnesses and stuff. I think that's why those sketches always look so generic. Oh, they <laughs> do! Aren't they the worst? <laughs> they look like a caricature <laughs> almost. <laughs> they do. Every or they, they look inhuman a lot of the times. Like they'll have weird eyes that are not any human eye <laughs> literally but apparently in this case yeah. the sketch must
1: have actually looked like the person okay because a unit from the national guard thought they noticed the man as a member of their group and it turns out they were right that's crazy yeah absolutely and not too far away from where the man's body was found yeah a truck driver found more trash containers and inside those, they found personal effects, like a parking ticket from Philadelphia, some money, some traveler's checks, and the National Guard ID that matched the group's claim. Uh. So they then utilized dental records, because mm-hmm. they're like, we have to figure out who this man is. Yeah. And they get the dental records through the National Guard, and investigators identified the man as Peter S. Anderson— who's a 54-year-old banker from Philadelphia. Okay. And when they searched his apartment, Peter's, mm-hmm. they found a fairly typical bachelor pad, if you will. Okay. Like, they said it wasn't like a pigsty or anything, but it certainly wasn't the cleanest of abodes either. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm getting a picture of that. <laughs> yeah, very that. For sure. Um. And they apparently found evidence of a recent male house guest yeah, unsure what that evidence was, but I'm just gonna <laughs> let y'all's imagination do the rest.
0: <laughs> and giggles <laughs> in twelve-year-old. I'm sorry. I yeah. am I I I'm so immature. <laughs>
1: no. Um so they end up tracking this house guest down to an apartment that he shared with his girlfriend. Hmm. And police even found blood on the ceiling there. What? Yeah. What? But it yeah. turned out to be splatter from shooting heroin.
0: <laughs> what? Casual. I didn't know that that could happen. Same. So, like, people who shoot heroin could have blood on their ceilings? Yeah. Ah. Oh. Everywhere, really. Oh. I don't like that. So, I think it's
1: important that we talk about Peter as a person.
0: I think it's very important.
1: Yeah. Um, He was married twice, Mm -hmm. and he divorced his first wife, and he was separated from his second wife.
0: Okay. So, he had some trouble with... Yeah. Yeah. His relationships. But... He
1: still remained close with his first wife. Okay. And his second wife, and he were pretty close. And the two had a son together. Okay. So it's like, even though it worked out, it seems like
0: they didn't work out. They stayed close. Yeah. I like that, at least. You know, she wasn't running away. Right. You know. I mean, not that she couldn't. I just, I don't know. I I love love. So, like, even in this case, I'm, like, happy they stayed friends. literally the best-case scenario if they're not going to stay together. Yeah.
1: And there was really nothing unusual about Peter Anderson. He was living a typical closeted life for a queer person of that time. Okay. And, you know, like is pretty typical for queer people of that time. Rumors swirled around and followed Peter through his entire life. That tends to happen. And you know the story. People would say that he dressed fancy, and he would often get asked if he was gay. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, straight people never get asked if they're straight, though.
1: Correct. They're just told they're valid and correct.
0: Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's all. I just wanted to make that point. (laughs) That's it.
1: (laughs) Um, And at one point, while Peter was out drinking while his National Guard group— He was actually assaulted because his unknown attackers believed he was gay. Wow. That's fucked up. It's like you don't even know this person, but you're just going to assume things about them
0: and then be violent. Right. There's no excuse for violence ever, period. End of story. Well, self-defense, but that's not really violence so much as it is self-defense. (laughs) Right, clear difference.
1: I think so. So police also find out that Peter Anderson had been seen at a local so-called gay bar in Mm. Manhattan, Mm. and it was a place called The Townhouse. The Townhouse. That sounds like a movie. It sounds fancy.
0: Well, yeah, it does sound fancy. I bet it, well.
1: And so it's at this point that the case of Peter Anderson looks like you know, we're probably not going to get any more information on this. We can't get any evidence.
0: Yeah. Well, so it, it's kind of going cold. Yeah, where are you going to go?
1: Yeah. So at that point, they get a promising lead just as they think it's going cold. And they get that lead through the VICAP system. Okay. Now, which, let me explain that.
0: Yeah.
1: VICAP stands for Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. Hmm. And this was a program created by the FBI. And it kind of allows law enforcement officers to compile signature aspects of cases into a centralized database.
0: Oh, that's cool. That makes sense, too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And they can examine the results, and they're able to quickly tell when two or more cases have something in common. Like similar MOs, the victims have something in common, maybe the type of weapon. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, yeah. No, that, that's
1: really, really helpful. Yeah, it's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. So, VICAP is usually reserved for cases of sexual assault, kidnapping, um, cases of missing and unidentifiable persons in which foul play is likely. Yeah. And homicide. Okay. And it was through the VICAP system that law enforcement received a hit in 1992 in New Jersey. Hmm. They discovered um, that a man had been found stabbed, dismembered, wrapped in trash bags, and crammed into two 55-gallon garbage barrels. That sounds familiar. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And just like Peter Anderson, this victim was dumped near a rest area by the side of the road.
0: Oof. So while out on a routine shift collecting trash— some New Jersey highway maintenance engineers discovered two large barrels. Inside the barrels were multiple double-wrapped and double-knotted bags. One of the men picked up the trash bags from the bin and noticed it was really heavy. He piqued his curiosity. He said that he thought it might be a pumpkin, in fact. I am not living for these descriptions. No, I mean, I am, but I'm also not. <laughs> right. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it's macabre in, in a horrible way. Um, but we all love a little macabre. Um, so they literally thought it was a pumpkin. And um, pretty soon, though, they noticed the bag was leaking blood. So they decided to open it. And upon opening it, the two made a horrifying discovery. A severed human head. Yeah. No, thank you. Right now, the the um, maintenance workers immediately reported the barrel full of trash bags, and the police were called. When they opened the bags, the police, they found six more dismembered body parts. In addition to the decapitation, both arms and both legs had been cut off and the torso had been cut just above the belly button, leaving a seventh piece, the lower torso pelvis area. I cannot. Yeah, it's gruesome. This is a whopper. To
1: say the least.
0: Yeah. So in addition to the dismemberment, he also had ligature marks on his wrists, suggesting he had been tied up. Um, Now, they were luckily able to immediately identify the man thanks to a wallet found in one of the barrels. They identified him as Thomas Mulcahy, a 57-ish, some some places say 57, some say 56, so I'm not sure. But anyway, a something-year-old from Massachusetts. Now, in addition to his wallet, investigators also found... Latex gloves, a bed sheet, a shower curtain, and a saw. And they had all been stained with blood. So they found a lot more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they were. I felt like this this, uh, time, this was more brazen. Absolutely. For sure. Um, So Thomas Mulcahy, a little bit about him. He had worked his way up in a computer company. And was doing very well for himself, by all accounts. Um, His work required a lot of travel and stuff like that, but um, in general, he seemed to enjoy it. Um, Thomas had grown up poor and seemed pretty unenthusiastic in some ways, though people have consistently described him as nice and caring, um... But a few people couldn't help but notice that he just seemed a little detached at times. Now, his dad died of pneumonia when he was only three. His single mother worked tirelessly to care for him. And he struggled through high school and college. um, And eventually he sought refuge in alcohol.
1: Addiction is such a common theme in the queer community, We just talked about it.
0: Right. It keeps coming up. Yes. Because, you know, it really is. It really is. And it's it's sad. And I think people are really afraid to talk about it because addiction is still very stigmatized in society. And instead of these people, like,
1: seeking help or relief or any type of refuge, people just say that addicts are a problem, basically.
0: right. Right. And it's disgusting. And uh, PSA alert, I guess we're getting into PSA territory, I think. Uh, it's okay to be an addict. It doesn't make anyone a bad person. And it's okay to seek help, you know? The mm. more you know, shoot a <laughs> star above the CBS <laughs> style. Literally. <laughs> um, so, the good news is Thomas did seek out help in the form of Alcoholics Anonymous. He was really trying. You know, he had good days, I'm sure, and he had bad days. But he was on a general upward trajectory in his life. Now, Thomas Mulcahy, as it turns out, was married and had been for around 30 years. Yeah. Um, Now, he and his wife had four children together. After the detectives talked to his wife... They learned that one year prior to his death, the two started going to marriage counseling after she found a brochure for a gay bar in his pocket one day. That makes me
1: really sad.
0: Yeah. He he was going through a lot. And uh, to say the least. Now, he had been in Manhattan for work at the time. Um, investigators were able to track Thomas Mulcahy's movements while in New York, and they discovered that he had visited a so-called gay bar in the area called Five Oaks. Sounds fancy, too. (laughs) Doesn't it, though? (laughs) I know, I read Five Oaks, and I'm just like, I can picture it. Like, there's a piano bar in the corner. They're playing, like, you know, Etta James. Very that. Yeah. Glenn Miller beautiful um, so yeah it was, it, it, it was a super upscale place it was in Manhattan after all um, so at the Five Oaks bar that's where he would unfortunately meet his killer and his untimely fate would be sealed I just want to reiterate how much I can't yeah yeah I know I brought you a real a real downer So, a bartender, a woman by the name of Lisa Hall, who's a real hero in this story, she worked at Five Oaks and knew Thomas Mulcahy. She said that he was very quiet and reserved and was not the type of person to go home with strangers, as she puts it. Okay. Yeah. Um, The last time she saw him, he came into the bar and had been drinking as usual. But at some point during the night, a man came up and sat next to Thomas. Um Lisa Hall assumed that the man was probably and must have been someone that Thomas knew, otherwise he wouldn't likely be talking to him because he just wasn't the type. Like he was just very careful. Yeah, he didn't he he didn't like to talk to strangers. He didn't like to go home with anybody, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but Thomas and this man spent the rest of the night talking, and eventually the two left together. Again, Lisa Hall said this was very unusual for Thomas, so she was feeling a little suspicious of this guy, obviously. Uh, She couldn't remember his name, but she did say it was something common and offered the names Mark and John. She was able to give a better physical description of him, however, and that allowed police to create a sketch of this mysterious man it was simply described as middle-aged, white male, and with brown hair. Well, shit, I guess that that really <laughs> narrows it down, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It's true. So, yeah, now police must be like, oh, our suspect is literally every Caucasian guy in North America, essentially. <laughs> That is not what you want. That is never (laughs) what
1: you want. No, it's not. Never. It's like uh, when it was a bad time to be bald.
0: Uh Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. So it wasn't much, but Lisa Hall was able to remember that the man had claimed to be a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital in New York City. After performing an autopsy... The medical examiner found that Thomas had been stabbed at least three times in the chest and abdomen before he died. He also had ligature marks on his wrists, ankles, and knees. So that definitely suggests that he was bound before being killed. Now they surmised that the killer had to be pretty strong. Not only were the bags very heavy, as we know, But the medical examiner had also determined that the manner in which the bodies were dismembered required both a great amount of strength and a pretty firm grasp on human anatomy. So this tells us that he was not haphazard. The killer had actually separated the bones at the joints. Ew. Yeah, like he pulled the joints apart and then cut through the cartilage yeah I have to go. Yeah, and according to one source SARS <laughs> <source. laughs> um, according to one source, it's actually harder to cut through that cartilage in the shoulder area than it would be to cut through bone. So if you're making the choice to do that, you're actually making it harder on yourself. That's dark. yeah, so they're clearly de- I'm obviously dealing with someone sick, but they're also dealing with someone who is a- able to be very precise. Uh, the medical examiner noted no jagged marks um where the body had been dismembered meaning that he uh, a great amount of care and that was put in that's
1: into. wild to me cuz how mm-hmm. would it not be jagged
0: right Now, I, I i am no doctor but i <laughs> i don't know right uh huh. um additionally Police also noted that the body parts had been washed prior to being tossed in the trash. Oh. And that as a result, quote, you couldn't get a Dixie cup of blood out of the remains. Oh. Yeah, we're going full Dexter. You really brought us to a great place this week, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. But um, police are starting to get an M.O. on the killer. They're very methodical and callous. They feel there was something intimate about washing the body parts after dismembering them.
1: Can can I—can I—I'm sorry to
0: interject. No.
1: Can I just say that I feel like intimate is a very weird word choice. Yeah.
0: I (laughs) absolutely—I absolutely agree. It's not the word I would choose. But, you know, I guess for a serial killer, (laughs) the— I guess it is intimate. I I mean, yeah, I just really don't like that word
1: being used in this context, I guess.
0: No, I agree. We need to come up with a better word for that, at least. Um, Intimacy, to me, implies love. Same. Yeah, and there's no love here. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of love, uh, at Thomas's funeral which was full of hundreds and hundreds of friends, family, and loved ones. His wife, Tracy, had this to say about the ending to her husband's life. Quote, It is ironic that someone with so much love was taken from us in a crime by someone filled with so much hate. Ruined me. Yeah. But also, I love how she just snapped back. At this point in the investigation, investigators have basically nothing. They know the victim, but they can't identify a perpetrator, a motive, or any credible leads. They tested the trash bags that Mulcahy's remains were found in, but the test did not yield any fingerprints or anything helpful. So they're back at square one again. Essentially. And it turns out technicians had performed the test now, this test involves super superglue uh, and using what is called a fuming cabinet, and it's, it's a whole convoluted thing. But basically, you, you place the article that may have latent pl- uh, fingerprints into the cabinet. You deposit super glue into the cabinet, and then you, like, close it off, and then you heat it via warm water, and it heats enough. And the fumes from the super glue like, disperse into the cabinet, and they're able to attach themselves to marks or prints on the materials and then they take the article and they like dust it with this black powder and then they use a fingerprint lifting tape to grab the print that is amazing yeah now for reasons completely unknown the technicians in this instance performed this test on the bags mulcahy was found in but they failed to ensure that it was tested in an airtight environment so they get nothing. Why didn't they just redo the test? Yeah. Um why didn't they do the redo the test? No one knows. Literally, I I could not find one reason why. It is not documented. Um I did a lot of research and nothing. I hate that. Yeah. Now, investigators weren't left completely empty-handed, thankfully. Um, they did find a bag of latex gloves and a keyhole saw, whatever that is. They were able to track down the SKU, um, which stands for stock keeping unit. Just fun fact I learned while researching this. Is that what that means? I anyway, know. I was like, "What's yeah. this, what's an SKU?" The but more the, you know, yeah, <laughs> knowledge is power. Again. So they were able to track down the SKU number from the gloves to a CVS in Staten Island. The only CVS in Staten Island, as a matter of fact. Uh, The keyhole saw, they discovered, had also been bought at a hardware store that had two stores on Staten Island. One of the stores happened to be right across the street from that CVS. So... Obviously, at this point, detectives, with the help of VICAP and Pennsylvania law enforcement and all of this new information, they're keyed into the fact that they are officially dealing with a serial killer. So on May 10th, 1993,
1: a 65 year old man is outside and he's hoping to catch a glimpse of a
0: blimp. How adorable is that, y'all? Just like cute little sky watching. He just wants to see a blimp. And I'm honestly, I relate to that. But he didn't see a
1: blimp. No. He saw something way worse and Mm. horrific, in fact. Mm. He saw a human arm sitting there in the road. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Immediately, the man drove home and then
0: called the police. (laughs) Same. I'm sorry. It's just so relatable. Like, if there's a body part on the road or literally anywhere, I'm out. Right, like, respect. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Leaving. Yeah, full respect.
1: So, once the police showed up, they found a scene that should sound familiar at this point. Uh Uh-huh. A man's body was found, dismembered into seven pieces, stuffed into double-knotted and double-bagged trash bags. Mm. The two arms were out of their bag, which police believe was due to some kind of animal messing around with it.
0: Okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. And— The man had also been stabbed multiple times in the back, and police noted ligature marks around his ankles. Sounds familiar. Very. (laughs) And they also noticed that the body appeared to have been washed thoroughly before being discarded by the road. Still so gross. I mean, it's all so gross. So gross. That part is next level. And now, police couldn't find anything to identify this man nearby. He's got no ID, no receipts, no no wallet, nothing. So, they take fingerprints from the arm, the severed arm, and put them into the centralized fingerprint databases. And very quickly, they receive a hit. Hmm. The print belonged to a man who was initially referred to as Eddie Ramos. Now, police were only able to identify this victim because he had a prior record of arrest for pandering, loitering, and
0: solicitation. Uh, But but wait, I thought these so-called crimes weren't worthy of the police's time. Right. (laughs) Call back to the beginning. Uh... Uh, The police had bigger fish to fry, but (laughs) according to their own
1: words, they nonetheless took the time to routinely go after sex workers and homeless people that they viewed as being— on the fringes of society,
0: so uh, to speak.
1: That's disgusting, yeah. 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 And they learn that although this man was originally from the Philadelphia area, he had been living in New York, New York City. Yeah. And while he was in New York City, he went by Anthony Marrero. Okay. And the saddest part of this victim story is that police were not able to find much more information out about Anthony Marrero, Uh they were able to nail down his identity through fingerprints, but they quickly found that there was no one that was willing to come forward to give any more information on Anthony Marrero. Hmm. Yeah, he he was not a reported missing person, and really no one was coming forward to say that they even knew him. That's so sad. And to quote author Elon Green... Quote, as the Ashbury Park Press suggested, friends and family were not eager to assist the police. Which I think points to, again, their inability to look into these things.
0: Yeah, I mean, as much as the police may be trying, or not trying, but even when they're trying, they don't get very far. Literally. And also, RE, that quote, Shout out to
1: Last Call. Um, it's called yes. Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York by Elon Green.
0: Yeah.
1: Y'all. It's so good. So it's- good. So in-depth. Y'all mm-hmm. should definitely read it. Um, we have to give a lot of credit to the, for this episode to this book. Oh, yeah. Uh, There was not much to be found about these four victims until we came across it. Seriously,
0: go read it. Yeah, honestly, you won't regret it. It, it, It's amazingly Uh, in-depth, well-researched, very nuanced story, you know, about who the victims were. And I think it— Uh, It's just—it's so good. It's worth a read.
1: Uh, No, it's so good. You and I both read it in, like, a day. Yeah. (laughs) Because it was just so addicting. Yeah, which uh,
0: is not usual for either of us. (laughs) No. The timing of it, I thought, was pretty odd, too. Like, we hadn't heard of the book at all when we started researching and compiling this episode.
1: And it just came out last year. Yeah.
0: And I had just, like—I randomly came across it, and it just felt kismetic. What the fuck does kismetic mean? Uh, Like— I might, I don't even know, I might be making up a word, but it's like kismet. Like, um, it's like when something is destined or fateful or um, uh, serendipitous. That's the word. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. yeah. yeah it was totally that. <laughs> <laughs> so, police, let's get back to the story.
0: Yeah. Police I, at this idea. point
1: um, learned that Marrero was working as a sex worker Okay. And he was working primarily out of the Port Authority bus terminal. Okay. And though that lead seemed promising at first, they didn't really get anything out of it. Mm. They were getting plenty of tips, but nothing was panning out.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, they were hoping to be able to place Anthony Marrero at the townhouse bar, mm-hmm. like fitting him in with the serial killer theory. Yeah. Okay. But they were unable to place him there. Right. And he had been to many other so-called gay bars, but— Apparently, no one had ever seen him at the townhouse. Oh, okay. But eventually, investigators are able to track down Anthony Marrero's younger brother in Philadelphia. hmm And they obviously expect him, as a close family member, to be shocked and saddened. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> standard the, reaction. I mean, yeah, if you're a human. But— uh, the police were met with ambivalence and even what they called embarrassment.
0: Oh, that part pisses me off so much. Same. Like his own family. Ugh. These men all deserved so much better. They did. They really did. And I hope we can give them
1: something better. That's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Anthony Marrero's family had long been estranged from him. And mm-hmm. basically they knew what he did for a living and it clearly caused friction. Yeah, as it often does, unfortunately. Yeah, and Anthony would occasionally visit them, but not for long, Mm -hmm. which I can't say. I blame him. No. No? And to quote Elon Green again, uh, detectives, quote, got the impression that they had come to grips with his life, that eventually they knew it would end with a knock on the door. (sighs) Oh, that one broke my heart. It is heart-wrenching. Oh. And like the previous victims, Anthony had also once been married to a woman, but it ended in divorce. And Anthony struggled consistently from then on. Mm. So, police find two fingerprints and a bag that's labeled
0: Acme's President's Choice. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say, this name is so stupid. Like, it, it, I don't know. It, 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 it it hurts my mouth to try and say Acme's oh. President's Joyce. Oh, I know,
1: right? And like, also Acme, like the Roadrunner cartoons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! Literally, I didn't even. You know, I didn't. Th- <laughs> I didn't think any Acme stores actually existed in the real world. <laughs> right?
1: Go get but your anvils, folks. Yeah. So. Anyway, uh, police run the fingerprints, and they don't find any matches. Mm -hmm. However, they traced the bag to a small chain of stores in the area. Mm -hmm. And they noted that there was an Acme store on Staten Island, which possibly linked the murder of Anthony
0: Marrero to Thomas Mulcahy's. On July 31st, 1993, a man found a wallet and some other personal belongings near a highway in... Haverstraw, New York. Sorry to the people of Haverstraw. I had a hard time pronouncing that one. Now, the man, I love this, he um, initially admits he wanted to take the money and run, so to speak, but he had a, quote, eerie feeling and called the police. For some strange reason, this doesn't get followed up on. However... A hot dog vendor randomly notices one day that there was more trash in his fifty five gallon garbage barrels than there should have been. Can I just interject? yes, it's it's been roadside
1: workers, a man <laughs> looking for a blimp, a hot dog cart person,
0: yeah, like, okay, yeah, it's there's never the it's never the <laughs> same story. Um, so yeah, the hot dog vendor finds this, and he's like, "Hey, you know." I love that he knows how much trash there should be in his can. Like, very impressive. Yeah, I don't even know if I have a trash can. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I don't. Like, like, good for him. Um, So he decides to investigate the trash, and he finds a human head that's been double bagged and double knotted in trash bags. Sound familiar? Girl, I was just going to say. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> so the police were called, and they were able to identify the man using the wallet that the hot dog vendor had turned in earlier. Um, They found out that he had been bludgeoned to death. The body had been dismembered, but this time, they only found a head and two arms. They were still missing the rest of the body parts altogether. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's disgusting. Now, on August 8th of that same year, 1993, a volunteer firefighter and aspiring detective stumbled upon a series of bags that were scattered around. And as he inspected each one, he slowly discovers the remaining remains. Remaining remains? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Remaining remains of Michael Sakara. Now, Michael Sakara. He was from Youngstown, Ohio. Ooh, and that's a little too close to
1: home <laughs> and for my comfort. Right?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. <laughs> so Michael Sakar, uh, he was from Youngstown, and he was 55 years old at the time that he was killed. A little bit about him that we could uh, fit in here. Um His childhood was marked by abuse from both his father and his mother. Um, Most of it was in the form of emotional abuse, but there was one time described um, where his mother actually threw a frying pan at him when he was a teenager.
1: Holy shit.
0: Yeah. And uh, according to Elon Green, his father hadn't, uh, I'm sorry, his father couldn't even stand being in the same room. As Michael. That is so fucked up. Yeah. And sad. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And Michael didn't grow up very well off. His father worked for a steel manufacturer. And his mother worked uh, various jobs serving and doing customer service, things like that. But by all accounts, Michael Sakara was uh, creative, smart, handsome, and a little nerdy. Honestly, he sounds... Awesome from that description. (laughs) Hell yeah, he does. Uh, I like to think people would describe me that way, but... Hey, I I certainly do. Oh, well, thank you, my glorious golden goddess. well, thank you. (laughs) So Michael Sakara, he liked music, he liked theater, he liked playing Scrabble, he hated liars, and he was such a hard worker that he was even able to skip a grade in high school. So he's just all around an amazing person. Yeah, very impressive. And now apparently his parents wanted him to be a doctor, but Michael had other plans and ended up doing a complete 180 and entering the army right out of high school where he served as a medic. Good for him. Yeah. Now it was in the army that Michael came to terms with the fact that he was gay. Bringing us back to don't ask, don't tell and that kind of... Thing that queer people have to deal with, queerphobia in the military, uh, Michael ended up receiving an undesirable discharge after only a few years. I know what that means. Yeah, if, if you read between the lines, undesirable equals queer. And I think everyone knew that, knows that. It's how things were done then. It was literally, I mean, it was before don't ask, don't tell. So, uh, yeah. That's bad. Um, Now, after his undesirable discharge, luckily, he was finally able to fulfill his lifelong dream he had of moving to New York City, which I think is amazing. And after moving to New York City, he became a regular at a bar called the Five Oaks, where he would sing, drink, and he would even introduce acts on stage. He was just living his fully best life. It definitely seemed like it. Yes, he seemed like a very happy man. After the medical examiner completed an autopsy, the cause of death for Michael Sakara was ruled to be blunt force trauma to the head. However, they also noticed that there were stab wounds to Michael's chest, as well as ligature marks on his arms. Now, unlike the previous two murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero, the dismemberment in this case was not meticulous. It was actually haphazard. Yeah. I wonder wonder why the switch. Right. I don't know. Now, this is weird, but a weird note I thought needed to be included. Um, Oddly enough, the medical examiner refused to release the bags that Michael Sakara's body parts had been discovered in. Um, Actually, years went by before it was discovered that the FBI had taken the bags, but never did anything with them. So... They never investigated. They never preserved them. So what ended up happening is that evidence was lost forever. That is so infuriating. It is.
1: So at this point, with all of these roadblocks, the investigation is obviously looking like it's gone cold. And people start pointing fingers, and they're kind of wondering, why hasn't this case been solved yet? Right. And they're thinking, did this case get pushed aside due to their identities? That's what I'm kind of thinking at this point. Yeah, I lean towards that. Um, So, the NYPD has been highly criticized for its lack of response to these and other queer hate crimes. Yeah. And according to Elon Green, our favorite author of the week. Shout out. Book book of the week. Literally. (laughs) While New Jersey police would invest their time in these crimes— the NYPD did not convey a sense of urgency about solving these crimes. No, they did not. Which is, again, infuriating. hmm And they argued the murders weren't in their ju- jurisdiction. But then a longtime NYPD detective argued that if they wanted to do something about it, they would have. Oh, yeah. I
0: mean, come on. It's the NYPD. Right.
1: But then they go on to make the point that, basically, it's not politically advantageous for the NYPD to do anything about this. Right. Exactly. And on the lack of urgency and response on the part of the NYPD, one of the Mm -hmm. detectives working the case
0: called it, too little, too late. That's sad. More could have been—yeah, more could have been done. Oh, Absolutely.
1: So I want to say, to their credit, that not all of the police involved were neglectful to the cases of these gay men that had been murdered.
0: No, no, no.
1: No. And one detective actually went so far that he enlisted his own family, Mm -hmm. even his children, Mm -hmm. to distribute flyers with sketches of the supposed killer. So badass. Very bad. That's the good cop. Very much. It's nice to see a good cop. (laughs) Like, can we get more of those? Yes, please. (laughs) So others were following crazy leads, and they included a man whose name was on a paper nearby one of the crime scenes and one that involved a Catholic priest. (laughs) I like that
0: one. Yeah. Because it was just—in the story, even the detectives were—they were just so shocked when they came— You know, you come across—you're not expecting to come across a church when you're following up a, a murder lead. (laughs) <laughs> Sounds like a bad joke setup. It, there's a joke in there somewhere, <laughs> I'm
1: sure. But nothing ultimately came out of any of this nonsense. Mm-hmm. Right. So police put thousands and thousands of hours into this case. Mm-hmm. But their biggest barrier to finding the killer was a lack of quality fingerprints that could be used. Right. All they knew was that they are looking for a strong person that likely works as a nurse and probably lives on Staten Island. Okay. Their man is clearly watching men in gay bars, and in this case, uh, the watcher is clearly targeting men who are overly intoxicated. They tried following up with St. Vincent's Hospital, and they received a potential lead— But nothing ended up panning out there either. It's like dead end after dead end. Literally. And so the investigators are realizing this too. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they're concerned about the case going cold. Yeah. But also the murders had stopped. Hmm. So Mm -hmm. this led many detectives to assume that the killer had most likely changed up his M.O. and was out there killing and dismembering people... But he had likely found more uh, effective Effective methods for dumping the remains in places where they were less likely to be found. Oh, that's horrifying to think about. Oh, yeah. If you just sit back and think about it, like how many years go by in this Mm -hmm. case, and you do the math, it's very possible that this man is responsible for, like— Countless reported well, and unreported missing persons,
0: but we'll likely never know either way. Uh, Years later, in 1999, to be specific, new forensic techniques would be developed and police would be able to recheck for fingerprints in all of the evidence that they've collected so far on what the media has now dubbed. The last call killer. Fancy name for a... Piece of shit. <laughs> Thank you, yes. <laughs> um, so the new technology was called vacuum metal deposition. And it used VMD uh, for short. Okay, so I didn't go to school for fucking science. So Neither did I. I went to that? school for English. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, So I don't know nothing. What I, don't th- know nothing.
1: <laughs> I don't know nothing. <laughs> Girl, I can't. Oh, my God.
0: There could not have been a more perfect time <laughs> for me to flub my words. <gasps> it, that it'd be like, oh, I have an English degree, darling. <laughs> and then, beam bite, okay, bim. <laughs> <laughs> I can't form a sentence. <laughs> Ever.
1: No. So, tell me about this
0: fingerprint space machine. <laughs> so, this machine is called um, the Vacuum Metal Deposition Machine. And basically what it does is... Uh, you put the article in a fuming cabinet. It's very similar to that super glue technique, but you put the article that you're looking for the fingerprints on and you put it in the in the cabinet. And first you in a small heating dish, you put some gold. Ooh, sounds yeah, fancy. It is fancy. Uh, like it was like 20 cents worth of gold, I think. So oh well that's nice. less exciting. Yeah, it's a tiny piece of gold, but you put it in there and um you heat it. There's the heating plate heats it until it vaporizes. And the gold vapor then lifts up and it attaches to the prints, right? But the problem with that is that once it's attached, you can't see it. It's naked to the human eye. But then they melt some zinc in that same dish, right? And then the vapors from the zinc come up and they are naturally attracted to the gold. So then what they can do is just take a picture of the fingerprints and boom, they've got it. So it so makes it a lot easier. You're telling me science has cracked the case. Absolutely. Let's go. So yeah, using this method, they're able to pull new, better quality prints from the bags. Specifically, they find 16 prints on bags from Thomas Mulcahy's case and three matching fingerprints on bags from Anthony Marrero's case. So they feel like they're definitely, you know, closing in
1: on I their... I want them to close in on this... Whoever this is.
0: Right. So after lifting prints, first they put them into the national database and find nothing. Again. Now, in a desperate attempt to find the killer, law enforcement sent out actual hard copies of these prints to all 50 states and Puerto Rico in 2000. Okay. Yeah, it was... It was sort of like a last-ditch effort. They, they weren't really expecting to get any hints. Hits, I mean. After all, they hadn't gotten any for so many years, right? Um, but they maybe had a little more hope because these prints were better quality, and a lot of a lot of states at that point were not uploading their prints into a national database. Long story short. One day, they receive a call back from an official in Maine. They found a match in their state's criminal database for the recent prints recovered. Get him. Yep, yep, they're closing in on him. Now this is the part in these true crimey stories where we tell you all about the serial killer. We tell you about their life, their childhood, their parents, their demeanor, their reputation, their quirks... Uh, And and then we tell you all about who they are as a person. Well, we are not doing that. We will tell you only what you will need to know about Richard Rogers in order for us to finish telling the story. Sorry, not sorry. Exactly. It's our show. And not yours. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And uh, we're not giving time to a monstrously queerphobic predator. He's not worth our time. No nope. fact. So, if you want to know more about him, go on and Google it. Or even better yet, please read the book that I go. We've been going on and on and on about, and that is Last Call, a true story of love, lust, and murder in queer New York, and that's by Elon Green. So here's what you need to know about Richard Rogers. He lived in Staten Island, and it just so happened that there were both Acme and CVS stores within blocks of his apartment. Boom. Yeah. Here's some more. He was working as a surgical assistant at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Yeah. So he wasn't a nurse, but they were very close, and he was a nurse at one point. So police go to the hospital... And they arrest him on the spot at his job. Oh, that is that is fucking <laughs> epic. Yeah, and, like, I mean, they straight up humiliated the shit out of this asshole. As that, he
1: deserved. I,
0: exactly, <laughs> exactly. One hundred percent, and then some. Uh, now, after this, they search his apartment and find numerous incriminating pieces of evidence. They find a Bible with marked passages that all have to do with dismemberments and beheadings. Gross. They find something they find vials of something called versed, which is a sedative sedative. I can't say that word. A sedative. In the benzodiazepine family. I can say benzodiazepine, but I can't say sedative. <laughs> Typical. Anyway, uh, it's a family of drugs that when combined with alcohol can have really disorienting effects, um, including a partial or complete loss of consciousness. Now, police are presuming that he would have used these sedatives either by spiking his victim's drinks or by simply charming his way into taking them to a hotel room or a remote location of some kind and then sedating them with the prescription drugs. I hate all of that. Yeah, and they also believe that he likely stole from his jobs and, um... Uh... Like, at the time, those types of medications, you know, they weren't carefully monitored the way they are nowadays. So So it was easier to get away with. Right. Now, here's the worst part. He had a very extensive and violent criminal past. Past. (laughs) Like, I lost my voice for a second. It was weird. You are on a roll today. (laughs) Sorry, everyone out there. Um... But yeah, he had a violent criminal history. He had killed his roommate with a hammer while he was attending graduate school. With a hammer? That is correct. Blunt force drama. But his lawyers were able to get him off by claiming self-defense. Okay, okay. How bad is it? So according to Rogers' defense team at the time, the man had approached Rogers for sex... But he rebuffed him. Allegedly, the man wouldn't drop it, so Rogers had no choice but to kill him or something like that. Uh, That's essentially what it boiled and, down to. And
1: he won this case?
0: Yeah. It's ridiculous.
1: It sounds um, queerphobic as fuck, and it sounds gay
0: panicky. Only because it is. <laughs> and um, you know what's really strange is that Rogers himself was actually a gay man a fact that came up in this trial of him killing his roommate. You know, that's not what I would have guessed going into this. Mm -hmm. Um, So after killing the man, Rogers had actually left the body wrapped in a tent on the side of the road, which, you know, kind of sounds familiar, right? There were also multiple instances of Rogers being accused of a very specific type of crime. Men had claimed that Rogers had spiked their drinks after taking them home, and they all said Rogers insisted on giving them orange juice, regardless of what they asked for. The men also said that they later remember being injected with something and losing consciousness. Upon waking up, some of them had been tied up. Luckily, they were able to escape without... They were able to escape... Wow, why can't I speak? (laughs) They were able to escape without serious injuries, luckily. But still, I I think it shows that he was, in my mind at least, sort of testing the waters, you know, before diving in. Oh, absolutely. I think he was seeing how
1: far he could push it, even in those early days.
0: I I agree. I agree. Uh, So finally, using a photo lineup, Lisa Hall... The bartender from Five Oaks was able to positively identify Rogers as the man that she saw talking with Thomas Mulcahy that night. So at this
1: point, they have an overwhelming amount of evidence against Rogers, yeah. and they set a trial. Now, for unknown reasons, he's offered a plea deal of just 15 years in prison. Mm. I know. I hate this part. And the conditions of the plea deal is he has to admit to killing Thomas Mulcahy, Anthony Marrero, and Peter S. Anderson. The weird
0: part? hmm He refused the deal and went to trial. That's right. He refused the deal. Like— He was being charged with potentially four murders. <laughs> and I, I just love that he was stupid enough to refuse the deal, but— Honestly, I find it even harder to believe that he was offered the deal in the first place. Like, how stupid is that?
1: Preach. Like, yeah. it blows my mind. Totally. So, we get to November of 2000. Yeah. And Rogers finally is going to trial. About time. And the prosecution attempted to try him for all four of these murders. hmm But they had a slight issue with that. Yeah. They could only definitively tie Rogers to the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. Yeah. But in a display of awesomeness. Yeah. The judge in the case allowed the jury to hear about all four murders, which was like obviously not what the defense wanted or needed in their fantasy.
0: Oh, no. I bet they were so pissed.
1: (laughs) I love it. But the judge did not, however, um, allow them to hear a case out of Florida in which a man named uh, John Piero was tied up, stabbed, and strangled. And Rogers is still their prime suspect in that case, though. He did it. Oh, yeah. No doubt in my mind. Mm-mm. So the defense tries to argue that Rogers might have simply carried the bags. <laughs> right? He just he, no, he He didn't do anything. He just carried the bags. Y'all— That is ridiculous.
0: (laughs) Could you imagine your defense?
1: (laughs) No, literally, your defense for murder is, no, I didn't kill him, but I
0: carried the bags. Well, where'd you get the bags from, sir? Like, did someone make you carry the bag? Come on, get out of town. Thank Uh. you.
1: So after a very short deliberation, the mm-hmm. jury found Rogers guilty on two counts of murder and dismemberment in the cases of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. Good. And even though he wasn't found guilty on the charges of murdering and dismembering Peter S. Anderson and Michael Sakara, I think, I, I think as as this strange family— <laughs> We can all just go out on a limb Mm -hmm.
0: and assume the man was guilty. I think it's safe to assume in this case, even though assuming makes an ass out of you and me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Either way, he was convicted and sentenced to two life sentences plus 65 years. Hmm. The judge ordered the sentences to be served consecutively, so he could potentially be eligible for parole after 65 years. But, but he's so old and crusty that he, it's effectively a life sentence no matter what.
0: Right. He, he He's so old. There's no way. Yeah. He'll be, I don't know, like 150. Yeah, maybe. absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So
1: the judge in this case hated
0: Rogers. And yeah, I did. live for it. Yeah.
1: And it was clear. Uh, he referred to him as, quote, an evil human being. <laughs> Only because he is. Only because he is. And he, the judge also said that uh, he hopes he dies, quote, in some hole in some prison without ever having freedom again.
0: <laughs> Same. I love judges like that. They're that <laughs> just like, this is my courtroom. I'm going to say whatever the fuck I want, bitches. You, <laughs> you, you, out. You're cool. You're cool. cool. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but I think we can all agree that yeah. he needs to rot in prison and die Absolutely. there. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. Um, and the judge abruptly ended the case by simply saying quite firmly, that's the judgment of this court. We're done. Take him out of here. Ugh. <sighs>
0: microphone drop.
1: No, literally, this judge. Yeah. Badass.
0: Total badass. If I were a judge, that's the kind of judge I like to think I would be. Like an effective one. Yeah. A helpful one. Yeah. A a human one. Yes. So, just a
1: little last note before we wrap up. um, It's a quote from a detective and, yes, it's from Elon Green's book.
0: That seems appropriate,
1: though. Yes. You know, I just had to wrap it up with a quote. Um... Quote, each discovery was actually something of a fluke. More than likely, they would have ended up lost to some landfill somewhere, and some of them may have been may have even gone missing, but were never reported. So the question you have to ask yourself is, how many more are out there that we just don't know about?
0: Ooh, Let I, that sink in. That gives me the chills. Like I'm serious, my hairs are oh, standing. Uh no, full chilies. I don't I don't want to think about that. Let's lighten it. So Emma. Yeah. Have you heard that we have a legitimate scientifically backed potential cause for alien abductions? Uh first of all, come on
1: call back.
0: Betty and Barney! Second of all, uh,
1: no, I have not, but uh, can I hazard a guess? Please hazard away. If Betty and Barney taught me anything, I'm mm-hmm. going to say
0: a lack of sleep. You know, <laughs> It's actually kind of ironic. You're not right, but you're actually not far from being wrong. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> so according to a new study... All alien abduction stories may actually come from lucid dreaming. Get it. Yep. I've always been so
1: fascinated by lucid dreaming.
0: Same. There's something just so cool about it. So, if if you don't know, lucid dreaming is dreaming in which people are aware that they're dreaming. And and oftentimes in a lucid dream, the dreamer has control of their dreams. Sometimes full control, sometimes only control to a degree, that kind of thing. And, yeah, it's pretty cool. So you're telling me that people are just
1: going into lucid dreams and playing alien abduction? I mean, basically, yeah, or at least that's a theory. Have you ever had a lucid dream? I
0: wish. I'd be doing so much superhero shit. Oh, my God, same. Same. Now, I have had a couple, but they were mundane and I didn't really understand it. And I've been trying so hard to lucid dream, but it's not as easy as you'd think. Um, but anyway, so claims of such alien abductions, right? They date back to the 19th century. And we obviously, you know, we covered one of the more high, higher profile ones recently with Betty and Barney Hill.
1: Hey, episode three.
0: Yeah. But this study found that while lucid dreaming, people actually experienced more heightened physical feelings, like terror and paralysis.
1: Okay,
0: I'm I'm not loving that. Right, <laughs> like um, alien abductions are scary enough, <laughs> uh, but this is uh, real, so might be even worse than an alien abduction. Literally. <laughs> yeah. So scientists actually prompted lucid dreamers to dream about encounters with aliens or UFOs um, and found that most of the dreams resembled alien abductions that have been reported over and over through the years. Uh, uh Uh-oh. Did did they crack the code? I mean, it kind of seems that way. Uh... So, about 55% of people experience lucid dreaming once or more in their lifetimes, and 23% of people have lucid dreams at least once a month. Okay, all I have to say to that is, lucky! (laughs) Right, no doubt. Uh, But in analyzing these lucid dreams, 65% of people described meeting, quote, aliens that resembled extraterrestrials that already exist in science fiction novels and films, and another 20% recorded seeing aliens that look like ordinary people. So, are you unfortunately
1: telling me that Betty and Barney Hill were full of shit?
0: Most likely, yeah, unfortunately.
1: Wow, this is a hard (laughs) day
0: for Emma. Yeah, it is. Um, Most likely, they probably just had a very active dream life, I'd say. Um... (laughs) Yeah People in this study also reported Meeting aliens Being abducted aboard the UFOs And undergoing experiments All classic tropes of alien abduction stories Right? We've heard that all before Yes Hate it But
1: And also I'm kind of upset though Why? Because Now alien abduction stories Just got like a whole lot less Like plausibly true
0: well, what if lucid dreaming is an alien abduction?
1: You know, I like that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so also interestingly, um, 30% experience sleep paralysis and intense fear, which again often accompany alien abduction stories. Well,
1: I, for one, in the face of this reality check, am going to <laughs> choose to believe that it could still happen. I it mean, could. Even though this seems like a pretty definitive um, explanation to me, uh, I guess mystery solved?
0: Yeah, maybe. I mean, kind of, at least for now. Until we get more proof. I mean, sure, it could just be, uh, you know, how your dream world is closely related to your conscious mind and the things you think about when you're awake or the things you think about when you're asleep— that kind of thing. And maybe that's all it is. But maybe there's more to it. I don't know. Maybe we'll get some proof. Someone out there could, like, uh, get a picture of these aliens if it's happening for real. Please? Maybe. For real? Like, please? Just, I know. Just once in my life, I want to see a picture of an alien. Well, yeah. Careful. Like a real picture. Yeah. But careful what you wish for. <laughs> I would freak out.
1: Also, though, thank you for this topic
0: because yeah. now I'm going to go read more about how to lucid dream. So thanks for that. Oh, of course. It's awesome. Um, and anytime. Um, honestly, I'm probably going to try to do the same because allegedly you can even teach yourself uh, how, to, how to lucid dream and how to like control your dreams before you even fall asleep. Yeah. It it sounds, sounds like deep. we all have homework. Yeah. But it's complicated. All good things are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed that lovely slash horrifying story. <laughs> I certainly did. Good. I mean, recording with you is just the highlight of my week. Oh,
1: me too. Me too. I, it's true. I I don't know what I would do without it. I mean, I know I see you the other six days of the week. <laughs> it's just yeah. This
0: is the this is the really fun one. Oh, no, it's true. It's true. We get to do all the all the fun stuff. Um. But it's that part of the show, folks, where we sadly have to wind it down. Bringing it down. (laughs) (laughs) Slowing it down. Um, Please hit that like or subscribe or plus sign button, whatever it happens to be, wherever you're listening to us, so that you don't have to worry about missing any new episodes. Every Thursday. Every Thursday. Plus, it really helps us out. Um, if you're feeling so inclined, please leave a nice review for us wherever you're listening as well. We'd really appreciate that. And you can find us on social media
1: as mm-hmm. always. Our Instagram is at that strange podcast. Our Twitter is at that strange pod. And as always, you can send us a missive at thatstrangepodcast at gmail.com. That's right. And homies, y'all know we're always accepting ravens and carrier pigeons. And (laughs) hell, recently we even mentioned we're
0: accepting enchanted owls. There are numerous ways you can get in contact with us. I'm currently working on um, magical white rabbits with uh, timepieces. Perfect. They're a very tough demographic to get a hold of.
1: But honestly,
0: y'all, just pick a <laughs> magical creature. Send a message. Yeah, it'll get to us eventually. I have plenty of magical creatures. They, they know people who know other people. It'll get to us. Send a message into the ether, and we will receive it. Eventually. Yeah, maybe. Five to ten business years. <laughs> but you can also leave a voice message. I don't know if you knew that, but you can leave a voice message using one of two methods. You can either go to our Anchor page and record a message, or you can give us a call at 415-617-5718. And that's the really cool option, because then your stories
1: and perspectives are in your voice. Yes, we'd love it. And we can just share them as they are. Yes. Um... If you're interested, you can also hit up our anchor page and support us there as well.
0: Sure thing. You know, and, uh, you know, basically you do you. We're not trying to tell you what to do. We're just giving you options. You, you do you, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe still listen. Yeah. And with that, this is That Strange Podcast reminding you, as always, to look after one another. And be kind to each other. It's just like your mama taught you. I know your mama raised you better than that. Exactly. This episode is brought to you by the DeLorean Motor Company. Are you sick of your car running reliably? Is zero to 60 in 15 seconds just too fast for you? Are you sick of not paying an arm and a leg for a mediocre ride? Worry no more. DeLorean Motor Company has you covered. Our stainless steel body is neither aerodynamic nor stylish, but it will show all of your fingerprints. DeLorean Motor Company where we bring our trash straight to your driveway. Now available at your nearest big lots.